El futuro tiene nada más que la confrontación. Hey, welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. I used to write a bunch of weekly columns for a fucking internet place, and I would use those columns to put forth all sorts of crazy opinions. Then I would come on this show to defend those opinions. But now, you know, I'm around. Joining me today, she is one half of the duo that hosts the 12 Questions podcast, which you can hear right here on the Unpops Podcast Network. She's also a fantastic comedian. Check her out telling jokes if that's ever legal again. Ladies and gentlemen, Anna Valenzuela. Also joining me, he is the other half of the duo who hosts the 12 Questions podcast here on the Unpops Podcast Network. Not only that, he has his own brand of hot sauce. It's called Ha Ha Hot Sauce. Maybe you should buy some. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Yates. It's going to be a great show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host today, my favorite co-host of all, no co-host. But I do got a couple of guests from the 12 Questions podcast. Let's start with Dave Yates, first time guest. Hey, hey everybody. Dave Yates, good to be here. Thanks, Adam. Hey, thanks for doing it. And uh, thanks for co-hosting a show on this network. We're happy to have you. Happy to be co-hosting on your network. Tell people a little bit about yourself. Uh, in a nutshell, I'm a uh, professional stand-up comedian. I am also a um, hot sauce artisan. I make and sell my own brand of hot sauce that I sell after my shows called Ha Ha Hot Sauce. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the only source of income I have right now in the pandemic. So buy some hot sauce. <laughs> I do fuck with a good hot sauce. I'll buy some. Also here, Anna Valenzuela and her adorable cat. This is Oscar. He is the other host of 12 Questions. Mostly he just comes in and he just goes, because he is always screaming at me, like most men. Anna Valenzuela, hello. Happy to be back. Family. Family. (laughs) Yeah, I think the last time you were on, we were talking about the pandemic and the the country reopening. (laughs) We're in California. That's not happening for years. I feel like people have just given up. They're just sick and tired of being in their houses and taking naps and they're ready to run around. And it's really unfortunate because it's uh, extra not working for us as a country. Yeah. And I super duper can't relate to it because I'm still fine inside. It's yeah, it's okay. Too. <laughs> it's it's been really nice. I'd been I didn't realize that for the last five, six years of my life in stand up, I had been running around outside getting very little sleep for so long, day and night. And quarantine's given me an opportunity to really like relax and like read books and write things and I'm like, Oh, this is nice. <laughs> yeah. I just love not having to go to a place to record. It's amazing. How's Isn't how's it- lockdown treating you, Dave? I fucking hate it, uh, <laughs> but I know it's necessary. It's very easy to run away from all your feelings when you're on the road all the time. And so for three months, I've just been fucking feeling everything. So, uh, I mean, I'm not one of those people that thinks I deserve to be outside or whatever. Or, you know, like, I, I get it. It's just fucking 
brutal. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, when I was on the road, I had this ability to like listen to self-help books and weep while driving to my gigs. Just be like, ha, 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 ha. So I was, I could never stop the emotional train that is me. I was always, <laughs> oh, could never quite run from my emotions. I packed them in the suitcase and brought them with. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, I've I've still been relatively busy, but not having to drive back and forth places has saved me a ton of time. So oh, I've been Los Angeles. Oh, uh, yeah, you suck. It's... We should do been doing everything on Zoom to begin with. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's so much better. But like everyone else, I've been watching a lot of television, and one of the shows I stumbled across. We talked about it on last week's episode, and it relates to what we're talking about today. Have either of you seen 60 Days in Narcoland? Oh, dear. I have not. I generally, uh, as a person who used to work in drug and alcohol treatment, consider that going to work for free. So I never watched like Intervention and all that shit. I was like, ugh. I loved Hoarders, though. Uh, loved that. That's far enough removed well, sure. where I could watch that. But I have not seen. Is is it worth a watch? Uh, no, it's the most problematic show on television. Really? I, <laughs> it deserves to be wrapped in an American flag and set on fire and chucked in a fucking river. <laughs> the premise is basically this. Imagine if cops and survivor had a baby. No. <laughs> it's it's a, a reality cop show with contestants who they just embed in poor communities and in jails to gather information on people. And they do it all under the guise of fighting cartels. They never name a cartel. I don't think I saw a Hispanic person until like episode six. But they're like, this is all about fighting cartels. And I hate it so much. Dave, have you ever seen it? Uh, No, but I've watched the fictitious, well, the based on real uh, Narcos show, Narcos Mexico. I've watched that. So that is my background in terms of... (laughs) (laughs) Stewart almost got cast on Narcos as a, uh, a DA, DEA agent, which is uh, Makes sense. checks out. That 100% <laughs> tracks. Because he's bilingual, they were like, ooh, let's make him a cop. Yeah, I'm surprised he's not in the CIA by now or something. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, that we know of. Yeah, good point. Yeah. One of the things we didn't get into a whole lot on the last episode that I especially hate about that show is... They take all of these really large problems, like the opioid crisis is obviously a huge problem. Drug addiction in general, obviously a huge problem, especially in vulnerable communities. And they take all these huge problems and boil them down to one thing, cartels. We just get rid of those cartels, all these problems will go away. And obviously, no. 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 And also, by the way, this ambiguous cartel, talk about representation being a problem in uh, Hollywood. They couldn't even get brown people on a show about cartels. The Latin Kings must be so pissed. It's <laughs> like, yeah, it's fucking <laughs> propaganda. It's like the Sicario sequel that was about Mexican people smuggling terrorists across the border. It's like uh, that doesn't don't fucking show no. that to middle America right now. Like, and that's not their that's not their business. They smuggle they, they no. take advantage of families is what they do. Yeah. And so that's that's very different. Have you ever seen The Pharmacist on Netflix? No. Highly, highly recommend. It's about the opioid crisis. And it's about this pharmacist that way back in the early 2000s, 
lost his son to op- to um opioid related like a drug deal gone bad and he starts seeing these kids with these like consistent prescriptions for pain and it's that this is the trifecta the holy trinity of vicodin oxy it's what what is it dave it's oxy it's um like tranquilizers like xanax oh, and like basically benzos. anything anything yeah. to knock you the fuck out this yeah. uh this doctor was writing mad prescriptions about it and this One pharmacist doctor. took it upon himself I, 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 they're in louisiana and this old this old man pharmacist took it upon himself to like shut down the opiate crisis in his area and this dude's like recording conversations with people and like he's going fucking rogue but it's because his his kid was shot during a drug deal gone bad and he worked in a pharmacy and seeing these people uh, who are essentially becoming junkies come in with the same doctor's name on prescriptions over and over mm-hmm. again so he, he goes balls deep in almost insanity like he tracking... ends up taking on the drug companies the u.s government it goes to the supreme court like this motherfucker goes i highly recommend it's the opposite of whatever this shitty game show for police oh. is <laughs> Yeah, it it sounds it's yeah, it's that that sounds very interesting and I will definitely check that out. And that's the thing, like this show, this Narcoland show, it boils everything down to cartels and doesn't touch any of the underlying reasons why these problems exist in this it's country. It's the drug companies. It's the drug companies. Well, yeah, that's the thing. The first and that's kind of what our episode is about today is about how a lot of these problems that this country faces are problems we created ourselves. And that Narcoland show is all centered ostensibly around the opioid crisis. And then they spend eight episodes like tracking cocaine dealers at bars. Mm -hmm. It's like, that is not the same thing. And I think the opioid crisis is a good example of one that like we started that. That was us. Yeah. 100%. And it, I don't know if we've talked about it on this particular podcast, but we did an episode of Pretty Scary about the opioid crisis. And it all mostly boils down to this one article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980. And it wasn't even an article. It was a letter to the editor. I'll link to it on unpops.com. It's 101 words long. So it is not science by Mm -hmm. any means. And this letter to the editor, which was written by these two doctors, Herschel Jick and Jane Porter, they basically said, well, what we've found is when you prescribe opioids to people, they don't really get addicted that much as long as they weren't drug addicts prior. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) hold on. My mom was in drug rehab in 1983, 1992. 1998, arrested, did a year in tent prison, Joe Artapayo's tent prison for drunk driving, and six months in rehab after that before she washed out, all behind opioid addiction. That bitch couldn't stay off pills to save her life. She was swapping them with my friend's mom. She would swap downers. Her mom would give her fen-fen. The fuck it wasn't addictive. That bitch could not. My earliest memories of my mom were piles of pills in her hand just and constipation she was always constipated because she can't shit when you take all that opioid stuff (laughs) yeah it really is an insane notion like yeah there's a reason we took heroin off the market it's because it was highly addictive and Mm -hmm. we i think a lot of people don't realize the next drug we tried after heroin i think was oxycodone oxycodone yeah and we had to pull that too but then in the 90s we were like 
How about you try some oxycodone? Let's see how that works out. Well, wasn't it, Dave, wasn't it like, okay, so it was heroin and then it went Vicodin, right? Which is an opioid. And then they had more, well, they would do pill morphine, heroin, Vicodin. Yeah, so essentially Oxy, yeah. Oxycontin is is like synthetic morphine. So yeah. so they were doing morphine, like heroin and then morphine were like, that's the old school treatment old school. for pain. Mm-hmm. And then- And occasionally st- methadone. They'll throw methadone in as a pain treatment as well. And they started synthesizing it and then trying to sell it because it was synthetic as not as harmful as- your predecessors of street drugs. And the thing is, is they're still prescribing opiates in situations that are no-brainers. Like uh, a friend of mine, he just had uh, surgery. Uh, I mean, it's going to sound like a joke, but it's not. He had surgery on his fucking asshole because he had uh, like a, a polyp or something. And uh, the surgery went fine. And then they prescribed him a bunch of Oxycontin or nar- Narcos to treat his pain from the ass surgery and he was like hey like isn't this gonna make me constipated like why would i like, yeah like he'd this have is... to take he'd have to take a uh, lot of colace with it that's the that's the trick <laughs> fyi yeah or just prescribe him something that won't further damage his asshole that's so what what he ended up doing was basically treating himself with like ibuprofen and cbd yeah, that's how that, I got through that, my surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ibuprofen is a fucking wonder drug. Like, yeah, anytime I have like dental stuff, like just take you can take four of them at a time, and it's not going to have you on an episode of Sixty Days in Narco Land six months later. <laughs> well, Stuart, no, it, they gave him Norco's for his nose surgery, which was like really painful. But I asked him, I was like what's your pain level? And he'd say three or four. And I said, what did the doctor say you should take pain pills at? And he said, at four or five, I should have Tylenol, anything above that, take the Norco. And I was like, okay, he took them twice. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's weird stuff. It's just weird stuff. And you don't want it in your system too long. Well, and that pain scale is such a fucking crock of shit too. <laughs> yeah. I know. You, know. you can go into any hospital and it's the standard of care. It's like, what is your pain level? And it's like, my three could be your nine. Yeah. You what know, am I a or, fucking doctor? Well, mm-hmm. that and you get a reasonable number in your head if you're addicted to opiates where it's like, oh, I'm going to tell them eight or nine, you know, so it doesn't make it seem like I'm lying. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to go w- one or two notches down above it's, it's this one. When you worked in treatment, the kid who walks in your office and he goes, oh, my back hurts. I don't know why my back hurts. I need to go to the urgent care. My back hurts. Yeah. And like prior to the 1990s, opiates were just prescribed in hospital settings mostly because it needs it's a supervised thing. Like, obviously, if you uh, don't supervise it, you have the opioid crisis in the United States. And the reason they stopped doing that is this one doctor named Russell Portnoy found this article in the 1980 New England Journal of Medicine and was like, see, we can start prescribing opioids all we want. And somehow the entire industry was like, yeah, that sounds about right. And meanwhile, this was a letter to the editor. It was not a medical study at all. And that is how opioids became so prevalent. We just leaned on this one study and doctors ran with it. Like, Man. we did we did that. How is eliminating a cartel going to fix that? That's pre-Facebook, by the way. That just happened. That was a letter in a, a little journal 
and people it's very interesting i think the human mind wants to believe certain things you know but like dave i'm sure you and i when we both worked in drug treatment 90 percent of our clientele were addicted to the combination of oxys roxys and xanax yeah and and the trend too was like somewhere around the late 90s you started seeing at least this is i mean i've i've been sober for eight and a half years now but like when i was coming up in high school you barely ever saw anybody with orange pill bottles you know but like towards the late 90s early 2000s you know your party scene you know people started getting the extras because people are over prescribing opiates at the time so uh you naturally most medicine cabinets across the united states of america had old medicine and this old medicine made you feel good you know, and this old medicine was very accessible and you could steal it very easily. You could go to your any family member's house and do it. So, you know, the result is come the 2000, late 2000s, 2010s, even into now in 2020, I think it's so far gone that it's, it's going to be increasingly hard to reel it back in. Well, and we're going to really have to watch amphetamines. You know, Adderall is, it's methamphetamine. And I I have ADHD. They tried me on it. I took a childlike dose and I was like, I cracked a tooth and was like, I don't think this is what, I, I stared at a plant for four hours. I'm not getting anything done. And I see, especially in comedians that like, oh, I'll just pop a few Adderall and finish the script. And I'm like, Yo, because that that's another thing that's really, really an issue as well. And the come down from that combination, those folks have no tolerance like for any sort of distress or pain. And their body screams at them saying that they're in pain so they can feed it more opioids. And one of the only things you can really block that with is pumping them full of chocolate and sugar. I mean, I do fuck with chocolate and sugar. It, it works. It's, I mean, what did you think, Dave, when, remember when, um, oh, what's that opiate, not the opiate blocker, because there's a, te- there's a shot you can take that'll block opiates from getting you high. But the one that kids ended up abusing, but at first they were prescribing it like crazy in rehabs. Do you remember? Are you talking like Seroquel or like the... Mm-hmm. No. What what is the effects? Alertness or down? It's an opioid replacement. Not methadone. Not um, methadone, the other one. Where people say that they're sober, but they're taking... um, Yeah. What the fuck is that shit called? uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that one, that one's a big, that one's a big deal because they, at first they were prescribing it in rehabs. I had multiple clients on it and we were like, oh, these kids are high. These kids are high as fuck. And what they ended up doing is they would palm them and then take them all at once. Suboxone. There it is. Suboxone. That shit you got to watch out for because that's the kid. The kids call it subs. Subs. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I don't know how you actually stop this at this point, because what's happening now and the reason that fucking Narcoland show exists is once you can't get opioids that way, you're going to turn to something like heroin. Oh, 100%. I mean, that, that's what happened. My my brother became a heroin addict. He uh, he had a uh, pancreatic divism, so he had a legit medical problem where there was a duct in his pancreas that was like split in two when it needed to be uh, an open way for, you know, amylates and lipates to enter and exit. And uh, 
So when he was in pain or when he'd have a pancreas flare up, like they'd take him to the hospital, he'd get shot up with Dilaudid, sent home with oxycodones or whatever. And uh, so then he started doing that. He started doctor shopping. And then after people wisened up, you know, I'd say people wisened up, meaning they started dumping out their old pills and, you know, starting to pay a little bit more attention to what was going on. Uh, you know whose door is always open? the dope man so you know that the, the heroin industry uh i mean it's never gone away heroin's pretty dope but <laughs> and the dope man up their game speaking of like you know major distributors of, of drugs whether it be cartels gangs whatever they upped their game and started cutting started cutting heroin with synthetic fentanyl which about four years ago killed a huge group of kids out in new jersey a bunch of old clients of ours like um it hit new jersey and um hit the florida uh rehab market really hard and uh, got us a little bit but they they wisened up too and they started cutting it with fentanyl and that shit is crazy dangerous crazy dangerous yeah that's what killed prince he took a fake opiate like mm -hmm. it was a bootleg pill that just had a ton of fucking fentanyl in it, and that's what killed him. Yeah. Oh, Prince. God damn. How yeah, did, like, why'd, you, why'd, you, why'd you have to actually talk about sad shit? I know. It's like the opiate crisis, is like, but then you, as soon as you bring Prince into it, you're like, oh, god damn, now it's real. Well, then it's it's the fun part is it's just like the opiate crisis. They're trying to blame brown people for the opiate crisis. But the thing is, is like heroin's never gone away. So sure, there's been cartel activity moving heroin across the border forever. But also like that we wouldn't have so many fucking heroin addicts right now if the prescription opiate epidemic didn't happen. So it's like you can you can blame cartels all you want. Mm -hmm. But they've never gone. They've never gone away. It's never like it's never like we beat cartels back and they stop moving heroin. Yeah. No, you created a a need for more heroin by giving people a drug that was essentially safe, quote unquote, heroin from a doctor. You know, and it, and then so the, when you when you turn around and you look at it, it, it and to the to the point of the. Uh, topic of the podcast is it's easier to blame brown people and mm -hmm. uh you know gangs because it's always been a a trope in the united states to blame the evildoers uh that are causing us so much problems when it's like if these doctors weren't getting a percentage mm -hmm. for writing these prescriptions they were making money off of writing these prescriptions so naturally they're gonna fucking keep writing these prescriptions because they get a kickback yeah and it was really like a the division of branding of this like war on drugs in the 90s it was very much war on drugs lock down the borders black and brown people are responsible for this crack down on gangs militarize the police force they have to crack down on this stuff but you get into the 2000s and now a bunch of white kids and white communities are dropping dead of this shit or ending up in rehab and all this crazy stuff and suddenly it's a opioid crisis and yeah. you're like you pieces of shit <laughs> yeah and it's it's interesting that when it's the opioid crisis that's mostly impacting white people or at least at first the reaction is okay well we have to shut down the source yeah but when it was the crack epidemic that was ravaging black neighborhoods it was we got to get black people off the streets in those black neighborhoods and it's like, well, well where I, where was the where was the concern about the source back then? Well, there was and, no concern because uh, there's a lot of articles and facts to point to that 
we created the crack epidemic as well. They injected yep. crack into black communities to further enslave black people and, and throw them in jail for minor drug offenses. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I met this really cool researcher. I was doing shows in Berkeley area over like a pride month or something. I met up with some friends and like friend of a friend. She studies drug violence and gang violence in Latin America. That's what she does. They actually have to do the study from San Francisco for Berkeley because it's too dangerous for them to do field studies in Latin America on the subject. They have a few informants that they utilize. And I asked her, I said, what do you think is the answer to ending violence in Latin America? And she says, white people have to stop buying drugs because that's what's financing the war. Yeah. And the and the answer to that request is no. <laughs> no, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to wear a mask. Fuck yeah. you. <laughs> We're <Yeah>. America. <laughs> and I think beyond just not buying drugs, I think this leads to another point that's in the notes, which is immigration from Central America, which is a huge, huge mm. deal right now. When we say the crack epidemic was started by the government to enslave black people, uh, fund the private prison system, whatever you want to call it, yes, that's half of it. But we also had a lot of military adventures we needed to fund in sure. Central America. Yeah. And that's where the money, like that's what the Iran-Contra scandal is in large part about, is we were selling weapons and maybe also drugs to fund our efforts to topple governments in Central America. And practicing what we would do to destabilize the Middle East. Yeah. There was a trading ground. It's like, it's all right there. You just got to read a book. <laughs> yeah, it's our history. Like, yeah. it's, like, it is the history of this country. And, like, that goes back as far as, like, 54, when the CIA overthrew Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala. We supported a bunch of dictatorships in the 60s. And when people got mad about that shit, we started backing right-wing paramilitary groups to go in and fucking murder people. And that led to all of this immigration from Central America because people tend to want to flee violence. And when they got here, they get criminalized for it. Yeah. Like, why are, you, why are you sending your kids here illegally? I don't know. So they don't fucking die as a result of the policies we implemented in their home country. Yeah. And it's just another thing that we complain so much about and we portray it as this thing we need to stop without ever being like, oh, yeah, but that was us. Like, yeah, we did I, that. We will view what we're doing on the border right now in 20 years the way people view internment. This is we created a situation. These people are running for their lives. Frankly, this used to be fucking Mexico anyway. You know, it's it's this insane way of looking at our relationship with our neighbors is, you know, protectionist and exclusionary rather than like, we're on this continent together. We have a vested interest to like, stay the fuck alive. Yeah. And with the Central America thing, it's not just that we put these policies in place that caused this influx of asylum seekers, basically, we're still promoting it like it mm -hmm. worked and was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like Joe Biden has come out recently and mentioned this thing called Plan Columbia that he was a big supporter of. Uh, it was signed into law by Bill Clinton in 2000. And Joe Biden being the law and order candidate that he is, 
endorsed. And to be fair, he's too senile. He probably thinks it's about coffee. <laughs> probably, at least now. But 20 years ago, he was probably right. a little less senile. And basically the idea behind it was, well, here's how we stop drugs in this country. We shut down drug routes. And at the time, we were talking about drug routes that went through rural areas mm-hmm. where there weren't a lot of people because that's a much better way to smuggle drugs as opposed to taking them through a populated area. But when we shut those drug routes down, I think we were assuming cartels would be like, well, we're not just going to go through the city. And those cartels were like, we're going to go through the fucking city. Well, that and it's like the, the, the best place if you're moving drugs is to hide in plain sight. Absolutely. I mean, they actually uh, made it more of a reasonable excursion. Because if you're in the jungle and you're moving shit through the jungle, you're the only fucking people in the jungle. When you're moving drugs through a city, it's, it, it's hide in plain sight. I used to do it all the time. When I was moving mass quantities of weed from Chicago to central Illinois, I would literally ride the Metro train and the Amtrak train during rush hour. I'd have a big backpack full of a felony quantity worth of marijuana, and I would only leave during rush hour because that's when you move. You move when there's a lot of people. And if people are trying to stop you from moving with a lot of people, like in these countries, with people are going to get killed because a lot more people are going to get killed because you're around a lot more people. But it is a lot safer to move drugs in public than it is to move them in the jungle. 100 percent because i mean you go with a helicopter overhead and you're like uh oh, that's you know that's a animal that's a monkey oh shit those are human beings what the fuck are they doing yeah and that's that's a thing we not only have sold as a successful policy but then we took it to places like honduras and guatemala and tried it there and the exact same thing happens they turn into extremely violent places where people cannot live safely So they have to come somewhere else and they end up coming here and then they get called criminals for it and sent back to that violence we created. And by safety, I mean, it's whole families. They'll come in and they'll say, give us your sons, give us your husband. They now belong to the cartel. They rape the wives, they rape the sisters. They sell the, they sell women into human trafficking. Like it's, it's, it's not good. It's not good. And we have just as much of a hand in creating that and looking at it as exclusively a brown or Latin American problem is institutionalized racism, truly. It's like we we have ooh, we've been teabagging that part of the world for years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's it's propaganda. Like it's like the the way we present this especially this situation, immigration from Central America, it's propaganda meant to make brown people in this country seem like criminals like it's criminalizing being a brown person well and pitting them too against like the thing that's really like having gone to blm protests and like done more research on sort of like sort of decolonizing my brain if that makes any sense is that the the party line since the founding of this country is if black and brown people get together and fight for their rights together we're in a whole lot of trouble. So what can we do to separate them, the indigenous people, all these people, Asian people? How can we create separation, create sort of a caste system within that in order to, you know, maintain that authority, the divide and conquer of it all? And I think what's really important right now is like when you're reading the news, just be present to like, is the divide and conquer trying to happen in this propaganda or the way people speaking, the way... The way Trump has always spoke is so blatant 
But it's interesting because it's never been shy about the divide and conquer. You know, it's like, I'm going to hang out with Kanye West, but then I'm also going to call, you know, call all of uh, Latin American men, you know, murderers and rapists. You know, it's like going back to that antebellum, um, you know, they, they will rape your white women, you know, and it's like, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I did a, a solo episode about Trump's Tulsa rally, and he said that exact thing in the Tulsa rally he, when he was talking about defunding the police. He goes, it's 1 a.m. and a bad hombre is bad trying hombres. to break in the home of a, and he, to his credit, stopped short of saying white woman and just said woman. But like, that's what, and the thing is, the way he sells it is it's not like it's obviously racist, but it's done in a way where it's more nationalist. Yeah. Where yeah, but these aren't new ideas either. He's regurgitating right. fucking old ideas. Yeah, absolutely. There's a great documentary. Um, if you if you fucks with documentaries, you are going to be loving the PBS app right now because the PBS app unlocked all of its civil rights documentaries uh, at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter protests. There's oh, a great nice. one on the Black Panthers where it the... just shows just how they dismantled the Black Panthers from within inside. It was, I mean, it's like the the rise of um, what did they call it? Uh, the the um, domestic. Um, intelligence like um COINTELPRO. COINPO yeah, COINTELPRO. And then um there was a really great documentary that just says African Americans in business. And it goes through the entire history of how black people have tried to accumulate wealth in this country and we gave them a bank that fucking went bankrupt and put a criminal in charge of it who was stealing from it. There's like, you know, Black Wall Street going through history with just all these different that the, the capitalist experience of of the black community is um it's it's terrifying and they they go into lynchings they go into basically like every time these people would accumulate wealth and status they'd be lynched or everything would be burned out which you know lynchings are making a comeback too ladies and gentlemen we're killing it we're killing it america They are unfortunately no, wait, wait, hot wait, wait. right you, now. You mean to tell me that these people aren't hanging themselves in front of courthouses because they're suicidal? You know... Is that what you're telling me? Every no. suicidal ideation I've ever had has involved a courthouse and a noose. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that's <laughs> that's really how I thought about it. Yeah, and the the thing about Trump and his immigration policy is it's kind of the same thing where it's clearly this country that created the conditions that a lot of black communities are living under right now. Mm -hmm. But his immigration plan, as much as people want to think it's geared toward white people, which it obviously to some degree is geared toward racist white people. But if you listen to the actual words, what he's basically saying is, Hey, uh, everything that's happening in black communities right now because of immigrants. And once we get them out of here, things will dramatically improve for you. And these liberal Satanist Democrats are worried more about protecting immigrants than you. Yes, there is. I I had a weird run in at a gas station in North Hollywood. You know, the one with the good little Mexican taco spot in there? Fuck yeah. yeah. You know the one with that El Cilantro? Is it El Cilantro? Yeah, Cilantro yes. Mexican. Oh, man. Those, those are the best burritos in L.A. 
amazing and it's a it's a gas station off the 170 it's a it's a chevron it's great so i'm 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 doing my thing filling up my car getting my burritos and a guy came up to me you know kind of crazy guy comes up to me um black guy comes up and he starts he he at first starts with a weird attempt to hit on me and i was like ah no and then he goes into um well you know they're trying to replace us with your people and i was like huh and I, I just turned to him and I just, I was like, normally I don't engage with crazy, but I just turned to him and I said, if you think that brown people aren't under the same boot as black people, we've got some issues, you know? And, and I was just like, I'm going to roll up the window because you're giving me crazy and you're feeling, ag- this feels aggressive, but that is the messaging. And, and I'm not saying everyone's susceptible to it. I'm not saying everybody in that community believes it, but I am saying that we, we have to come together. The amount of Afro Latinos there are in the world, we are, this, it is all the same. This is the same problem. The experience has been different. The, the, the attacks have been different, but there has been syst- colonialism has fucked both our cultures and coming together is the best way to fix it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, 100%. And it's not just immigration from Central America, immigration from Mexico, too, mm-hmm. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That was also pretty much a thing we did. Oh, yeah. And it was primarily because of NAFTA, mm-hmm. which was ironically presented as a thing that was meant to reduce the need for illegal immigration into this country uh, by opening up Mexico to U.S. investment, because you know how much the locals prosper when American corporations show up. Always a boon for a poor country when an American company sets up shop there. I'm joking, obviously. We <laughs> fucking ruin the world with that. Don't, don't lie. This, this, this is your bread and butter. You're like, you know what? More American businesses need to fucking infiltrate. Yeah. <laughs> It's just my covert way to be really mm-hmm. pro corporation yeah. on this podcast. This is actually a sponsored podcast. I can't wait until all of Mexico's a sandals resort. You know, like that's <laughs> gonna be that's gonna be fantastic. Um, a COVID covered sandals resort. <laughs> There's my. Um, do you remember Pete Wilson? Do you remember that motherfucker? Governor, right? Governor Pete Wilson, and I. I, I grew up. You know, I was born in the eighties you know 80s baby 90s kid and so i grew up with a lot of news reports um here in california proposition 186 proposition 186 was um designed to limit social services down to education and um emergency medical care from anybody man woman and child who immigrated illegally in california and you want to know what the backlash to this Trump shit's going to be? Look at California. Because while we still have a ton of problems, the racism of the 90s in California, I just remember my dad just being, we lived in an all-white community. I remember um, uh, part of, he was a Freemason. He's dead. I can talk about it. He was a Freemason. And, um, and my mom was trying to get in the Eastern Star. And the reason why she couldn't get in the Eastern Star is this one old woman looked at me and she said, well, you know, all those dirty wetbacks just need to go back to where they came from and stop trying to take our money. And my mom, as crazy drunk and high as she was, did not stand for that kind of shit. Told that lady, shut the fuck up while they were quilting, you know, because that's some that's some real old lady shit to do. And, and it was like... 
it's one of those things where I, that was the messaging growing up in a agricultural community that was previously a mining town descendants of gold miners and dust bowl okies that was definitely a thing that was very upsetting i grew up with kids asking me if my dad picked tomatoes for a living it's like no my dad's your boss your dad's boss motherfucker because everybody worked at the same prison but it was very um it was a very very uh upsetting time to grow up in California because we were very much othered and because you know Californians and agriculture communities and the more like central through Orange County the Reaganite Republicans in California were really just hell-bent for election to um, do what Trump is doing on a national level now and uh, you know what fucking the backlash is going to be bad it's going to go in a very liberal direction after that. I hope. God, I hope. Yeah, I hope also. I mean, I guess it kind of, no, not really. After Clinton, we got Bush for eight years. So it didn't really go super liberal after NAFTA. But the the thing NAFTA did is it, there were a few different reasons why it didn't do what it was supposed to do. Basically, we sent all of these factories to Mexico. And part of the agreement was that the Mexican government would take a lot of that money and invest it in infrastructure that would allow factories to go up in other parts of the country. Uh, governments don't work that way. Usually governments get a big influx of money and they fucking spend it however the fuck they want. And that kind of happened in Mexico also. So what do you mean? Trickle down economics doesn't work in any country. Can you imagine? <laughs> imagine that. Who knew? <laughs> and so all of these factories end up congregating in the north of Mexico and anywhere else where there was manufacturing, those companies just got crushed because we were able to send our cheaper, but in a lot of cases, higher quality goods into Mexico and the companies that were already doing that kind of shit just died out. So that's just millions of people losing jobs in the span of a couple of years because of NAFTA. And then the same thing happened with agriculture. We started sending all, like, as much as we bitched in the 90s about the government subsidizing corn in this country, and we're like, eh, they're growing corn, they don't even need, why are we doing that? We did it to fuck Mexico. We sent tons and tons of corn into Mexico thinking that, well, the people there who grow it will just start growing strawberries and shit. And that might have worked, but the people growing corn in Mexico were protected by tariffs and the government took those tariffs off earlier than they should have. So instead of being able to come up with a long-term strategy, people had to come up with a short-term fix. So Drugs. immigration to the United States. Yep. We well, did and it. On top of that, it, you, you look at it this way. They're already making low wages and then those low wages were taken away from them. Okay, so they move north to take slightly higher wages than they were making, but still lower wages than what we were paying our American workers. And so you you say, oh, we, did, we don't want these people coming into our countries, but you see how many people get picked up outside the Home Depot all the time. Everybody, everybody likes getting something for a little less money. So you have a, a rubber band effect where we sent all this crap down there and now it it's coming back and we don't like what we sent down there because you know the people that are coming from mexico to work for I, i'm just guesstimating a, a couple extra dollars more than they were making 
in Mexico at a couple extra dollars less than what we're paying people here. So they fit into that into that group of of a low paid but will work for that money. Well, uh, and, and also under slave conditions. I mean, they were working in those fields. That's I mean, that's the 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 um, Cesar Chavez movement is is immigrant rights in the fields. It is people were losing hands, fingers, working 18 hour days. Women were being sexually assaulted. It I mean, and I say were are that's like a thing. Um, and but it's what I love is that a lot of farm workers are now unionizing and I fucking love it. But now it's turned into meat processing. Um, uh, you know, that fucking raid they had in Arkansas, where they just rounded up a bunch of people who are meat processing. I'm just this is what I'm excited about. My dad always used to tell me, let those little kids say racist things to you. Let them kick out all the Mexicans. And here's what we'll do. We'll go watch white people pick strawberries together. Miha. That's what we'll do. We'll go watch them do hard work. And that is what's going to happen if folks don't get it together. <laughs> the thing about that, though, is when you're talking about immigrants in this country, it's not just people picking strawberries, like especially when you start talking about dreamers who are going to fucking get deported at some point, And that'll be like our crystal knocked. But like what we did in the night, we didn't just put the conditions in place for a wave of immigration from Mexico. We let those people who came here build an entire economy that now we want to pull out from underneath them and move another segment of society into, which is Americans, be it white people, black people, like Trump won't sell it as, oh, this will help black people. He'll sell it as this will help Americans, but especially black people. And it's like, it's a massive transfer of wealth is what it is. And the people supporting it are supposed to be against that kind of thing. Last time I checked, like, that's not, that's not how this government is supposed to work. We don't, we don't engage in transfer of wealth. That's socialist shit. Big daddy capitalism's got to keep all the different groups separated so it can keep fucking us every which way. That's really what it is. Yeah, it, it seems like the direction of this country right now is just we're trying to figure out what segment of society will most people be most comfortable with getting rid of. Getting rid of. Well, which is crazy because I wonder if that's hopefully, I hope that that will change. You know, there was a moment in the Black Panther movement where the most dangerous thing that happened was the Black Panther leader in Chicago brought the Latin Kings in and poor Appalachians in, poor white Appalachians in. And that is what got him killed, was creating unity amongst other groups. So if we can still focus on creating unity, I think I think there's a little bit of hope. I mean, you you always have your head in the news, Adam. My heart hurts for you sometimes when I look at the news. I'm like, poor Adam, <laughs> just swimming around in this horror show all day. <laughs> well, if you want to, speaking of horror shows, if you want a more recent example of what maybe happens to groups like the Black Panthers, look at what happened to Tupac. Like, we think we know who killed Tupac, and we think we know why, but there's a prison interview with Tupac from right before he got out and signed with Death Row Records. It's free on Amazon Prime. I think you can find it on YouTube. Watch that interview and listen to the shit he's talking about. It's the exact stuff that the government infiltrated and destroyed the Black Panthers over. So he's saying all of this as one of the biggest stars in music. Like, don't discount for a second 
that the government fucking killed Tupac. Like, I know sometimes, you know, people just die and murders happen, but sometimes government fucking kills people too. Yo, I used to be much more skeptical about um about conspiracy and until I learned about two things, MK Ultra and Jeffrey Epstein. I was like, blew my mind. I was like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> MK Ultra is the best example because there were so many rumors that that existed for so many years and the CIA was like, no, it didn't exist. And then some word of it got out and the CIA was like, all right, it happened, but it wasn't massive. And then one box of documents got put in the wrong place instead of shredded. And we found those documents. And then the CIA had to come out and be like, Okay, it happened at like 143 hospitals across the United States and Canada. We didn't tell anybody. We ran a brothel in San Francisco. It's fine. Yeah. Like, conspiracies happen. It does. It does. We know that. Oh, man. So let's, let's talk about another thing. This, if you're at home listening to this and you're bothered by us implying that the United States brought a wave of illegal immigration on itself. Because they did. Buckle up, because you're going to hate this next one. We also <laughs> created MS-13. Yeah. Like, that is that is what happens when you start a civil war in El Salvador. People flee that civil war. A lot of them end up in Los Angeles in the middle of the crack epidemic. They for, MS-13 formed as protection for Salvadoran immigrants. Like they didn't start as a street gang per se. They were just living in that environment. And we're like, well, we can do it. We just fled a fucking civil war, pal. You think we don't know how to use a gun? So they formed in Los Angeles. And then after that civil war ended, we mass deported Salvadorans back to El Salvador and gang culture with it. Yep. And now it's just this cycle where people flee. They end up in L.A. They fall in with MS-13. They get deported. Now MS-13 is a huge fucking deal in El Salvador, too. We did that, America. We did. And if you feel like very separated from this, I worked in um, a treatment center on 92nd Street in Central Ave for a while. And it was a reintegration center for folks who had done federal time, mostly bank robbers and stuff. And a real fun job for 26-year-old me. And um, the first week I was there... Uh, was the beginning of the war between MS-13 and the Bloods. Cool. Fun. Fun. Yeah. Uh, one of our clients was shot seven times with a twenty-two in our parking lot. Um, he survived because uh, they're little baby bullets. Still bullets, but little baby bullets. And the last week I was there, somebody um, unloaded a Glock into the safety wall of the facility. Um, I would... I was around the corner from the bus stop that was shot up um, by MS-13. I um, They wouldn't let me get uh, lunch on my own. Um, one thing that was happening, and I saw it happen, is folks would deliberately hit your car um, to either rob you or kill you. Um, and I saw in front of a gas station, somebody just plow into another car. And I went, you know what? I don't need gas that bad. And I just fucking kept driving, got on the freeway and got as close to downtown as I could, which at the time felt safer. Um, it was, which is crazy, which is crazy. Yeah. And, um, it was a really intense 
thing to witness because, you know, I'm third, fourth generation Latino. So like my experience of gang violence is very separated. It stopped with my dad. And so there was, it was a really gnarly thing to witness. And then when I was living in Long Beach, you know, the Latin Kings were in, in, um, uh, the adjoining community, Hawaiian Gardens, is the southernmost tip of Los Angeles County. Um, best flautas in the city, by the way, uh, down in Hawaiian Gardens, not too far from you. Um, I'm into that. Yeah, Taco San Pedro. And um, the community was, I think it was mostly Latin Kings. I don't know if it was MS-13. But what was happening was, is there had been Black people who lived in that community for years, and they were being shot execution style by the gangs just for being Black. And so the federal government came in one Saturday morning and just recoed the whole fucking town. And then they went to San Pedro and they recoed the the whole fucking town just rounding up these these gangs because they had really reached like they were committing hate crimes at this point so it was insane insane and it did a lot to destabilize two communities of color that just like the long-term effects of this gang activity coming back over to the u.s does a really great job again to separate two communities it's it's crazy yeah, that's what we do in this country. Yeah, but them flautas are bomb. Every time I'd bring a white boy with me to get them flautas, they'd get like shit talk. They'd be like, oh, hey, Weddle, what are you doing here? And like fucking like post up and shit. Like it was fucking here to eat. Yeah, I'm here to eat. These flautas are these flautas are flea gang violence. Good. That's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's how good they were. Um, and willing to risk it. Willing to completely willing to risk it. That's how good they were. <laughs> how i feel every time i drive to van nuys to go to the one long john silvers in los angeles <laughs> yeah, they don't even got popcorn shrimp uh do you know yeah it's I a sent, limited sent, ljs but i'll take what there. i can get i sent my buddy up there uh we're both from illinois and long john silvers is a staple in illinois uh and he went up there and they didn't have popcorn shrimp that is, that is disappointing. That yeah, the the downfall of LJS in this country is really one of the underrated issues. I facing. could never get on board with it. And whose fault is it? That's right. ours. America's fault. America. That's, that's why Long John Silvers are fucking disappearing all over the country. I've never had Long John Silvers, but I Cause remember you're fucking terrible. Because you're terrible. Well, there was no fast food where I grew up. There was like one Taco Bell and one Burger King. That was it. You worked and... the road. If you really wanted to experience Long John Silvers, you could have fucking found one. You know what's so funny is I will eat ceviche out of a grocery cart sold to me by a person like that. I, I I will I don't I will eat a tamale out of a grocery cart. I will I will consume all sorts of street foods, but something about Long John Silver's freaks me out. You're so wrong. <laughs> yeah. This is You get uh, to ring the bell on the way out and everyone yep. says thank you. That's I guess you tell that's them they my did unpopular opinion. Yeah. Long John Silver's freaks me out. Yeah, to 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 the to the whites, that's hate speech, okay? You yeah, we're reporting this to that website Trump set up where you could report right wing bias. Well, to the working class whites, because I know my ultra white boyfriend has never had Long John Silver. He's never really eaten fast food because he was too busy eating brie. Oh, because <laughs> he's too busy helping the CIA topple foreign governments. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Uh, I had ISIS on the list, too, but everyone knows we created ISIS, right? That's like. I don't think people know. And I think here's the thing. Like, I maybe I just, I, 
I, I, I kind of sit back and I listen a lot more than I talk these days. And it's just like, when we say create, it's not like we set up a laboratory and went, we're going to make some ISIS or we're going to make some. No, but what we say when we say create is it's a cause and effect. Are there little and trays I, that you put ISIS in? Yeah. Put them in your fridge? ISIS cube trays. Yeah. ISIS cube ISIS trays. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's my, new, it's my new merch. <laughs> But it's a cause and effect. And I think the problem is that America does not acknowledge the cause. They, they're only acknowledging the effect. So with groups like MS-13 and the immigration and the opiate crisis, we're not acknowledging the cause. We're only acknowledging the effects. And uh, unfortunately, until the effects started affecting white people, started affecting affluent people, People's kids were dying of opiates that were upper upper middle class, wealthy class people were dying. That's when people started giving a shit. You know, it's it's the same thing. You know, we have to have an enemy in America. And, and, yeah. and essentially, the enemy has been ourselves for a long time. But we try to dress it up with ISIS or MS-13 and things like that. But, you know, the the, the causation of it was... We always meddle in business that ain't the fuck our business. We're, you know, that's why it was so funny to watch, you know, Trey, uh, uh, Trey and Matt from South Park do Team America World Police. And everybody laughed and they thought it was funny. But it's just like it's 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 based in fact. It's we think we are the arbiter of other nations when 90 percent of the time. And this is this is not a, a popular opinion. But like, if we spent more time in this country trying to fix this country, we wouldn't have the effects that we blame on other countries. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wrote it. I wrote a joke the other day, and it's like, unfortunately, you can't really be a middle of the road person anymore. You're either on this team or that team. You know. Uh, and I wrote a joke the other day. I'm like, you know. You know, uh, people in L.A. post on Facebook, someone in your neighborhood is scared of fireworks, post pictures of the dog. But then they'll drive past 100 homeless veterans to get to Starbucks. It's like, yeah, your animal is scared of fireworks, but you know who is also probably afraid of fireworks? These fucking people who served in war countries and now are living under a fucking bridge. You know, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't help people and we shouldn't be a place for people to seek uh, asylum. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's just we don't spend enough time fixing what we have in this country in order to even justify being anywhere else to help other people. It's kind of like that old like uh, that old adage, like I, I can't. I can't be of service to you if I if I if I can't take care of myself. Well, and I also it, there's a lack of introspection in our country and they teach it in the schools because they're not teaching people to be introspective. They're not teaching people to critically think they're teaching people to regurgitate facts and figures and to prepare for tests. And if we as a country began to look at ourselves in a critical way, and I think that's a lot of what's happening right now is we're like, oh, 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 oh don't like this. Oh. And it makes people deeply, deeply uncomfortable. It gets back to that Brene Brown, you know, in order to talk about racial violence in this country, we have to talk about, or violence around the world, we have to talk about shame. You know, the thing about Two great books I read, um, they're fictional books, uh, Kite Runner and A Thousand Splendid Sons, really beautifully written and explains uh, through fiction a fantastic history of the um, how 
when Russia occupied Afghanistan and the destabilization that the U.S. created selling arms to, you know, militia groups that helped form ISIS and the effects that it had on the people. I highly recommend reading it. Highly recommend. It will make you weep like a baby. Both books. Weep. Yeah. 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 And the when we say created, like Dave said, we don't mean built in a lab, but in, in the case of ISIS, the conditions that caused it, like there's a reason the first time we, during the first Gulf War, we didn't occupy Iraq. We didn't invade Baghdad and occupy Iraq. And that's because people fucking hate that. And the Kuwaitis were drilling diagonally into Iraqi oil fields. They kind of had every right to fuck with Kuwait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, there, there is like the, the way we sold that war is insane. We did an episode of the nineties sucked about it and it was such a fucking media blitz of patriotism while we were committing fucking atrocities, like there's there's a a really famous moment from the war in Iraq, the first war that probably ended the war, uh, called the Highway of Death, where we told Iraqi troops they had a certain amount of time to get out of Kuwait or there was going to be problems. And the the problem for them is that there is one highway that goes from Kuwait to Iraq. And we waited for everyone to get on that highway. We created a bottleneck at the beginning and the end, and we just bombed the shit out of everyone who was trying to flee. And even then, most Middle Eastern countries were like, whatever, man, that's what the U.S. does. But when we went there the second time and stayed, that's what changed everything. People don't like an occupying force. So when you combine the fact that we had already armed so many people in that region through the Afghanistan conflict. And oh, yeah, now we, we're, we were giving occupying... weapons to Osama bin Laden, you know, like yeah. that, it, it, it is not just like ISIS is just the new is, is the new uh, costume for the, for the problem. Is it still ISIS or is it back to being ISIL? Well, it, it depends on what country you're okay. talking about. Okay. Uh, ISIS, I think is actually, is that Syria? Yeah. It's like Islamic state. Islamic State in Syria, yeah. like ISIL, I think is Lebanon. Lebanon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing we did in Iraq that very directly led to the rise of ISIS is after we got in the country and occupied it for a while, we just made this snap decision to fire the entire military. Bad plan. So Because they know where overnight, the light switches are. You know what I mean? We had that problem yeah. in the White House, and they culturally understand. We sent over a bunch of fucking anthropologists who were literally lit on fire because they were coming at it from an academic but also ethnocentric, um, uh, like these military anthropologists in replacement of actual government officials that were that were there. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, we, we fire the military. That means all of these well-trained, well-armed dudes are now unemployed, which when you're in that situation, you are especially vulnerable to a radical type of organization coming in and being like, hey, we'll help you out. Just uh, do what we do. Yeah, and then, know, like the KKK. <laughs> and then we detained tens of thousands of people at this uh, camp in Iraq called Camp Buka. Which meant everyone had time it's not, to. It's not Buka de Beppo, by the way. Yeah, Buka de Beppo. It's too it's much not, food. It's not the family style Italian <laughs> restaurant camp. 
That's why we're in Iraq. We want it to be, and they're resisting. It's all about getting Buka to Beppo. Eat that big the- CD and like it. <laughs> but what we did is we detained all these people at this camp, and that gave them plenty of time to sit around and talk about how much they fucking hate this and, and what the- they should do about it when they get out. And a tale as old as time, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. So, no, we didn't create ISIS in a lab, but we just put all of the conditions in place for something like that to happen. And in both of those wars, by the way, we had an immediate cost. In the first one, the Gulf War Syndrome, uh, that that um, murder highway basically was uh, they were bombing it and using weapons that were actively causing harm to our soldiers when they came back. Um, And it's reignited PTSD, which I think America runs on capitalism and PTSD. God damn it. We love PTSD here Um, because it really makes people lean into these um, oftentimes racist or, and I'm not saying everybody who has PTSD has these issues, but like, um misogynistic like you lean into this like toxic masculinity to protect yourself from the fear happening in your own body oftentimes um did you watch generation kill or read the book Mm, no oh yo it's an old hbo show and it was written by um somebody in the first second gulf war first invasion so it's the marines that evaded the first the first fucking day right and it's a recounting of that their experience and what they saw and it's actually really funny and um there's an open mic comic here in uh la jeff carasalis was in it actually um yeah and um they had uh they they had a it's it's really good alexander skarsgar really good and it explains the mentality of the kids they sent in and and how very quickly they became affected it's very interesting Yeah. And the thing about trauma and what you said about how this country uh, kind of thrives on trauma, that's sort of the point of MKUltra also. Right. Was they they were very much exploring what you can do to a person after they've experienced trauma. And they they know that a person is more malleable Mm -hmm. when they've experienced some trauma and the younger you can get them, the better. Like a lot of MKUltra shit happened on kids. Yep. It's fucking terrifying yep yep so we're bad it's it's rough out here in these streets (laughs) i just think the worst the worst part is just we're 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 not willing to acknowledge our bad okay you look at you look at a country like germany who had such a sordid past and uh you know they they acknowledge their bad in order to move on from it and i don't think there's a place yet in america for the collective consciousness to acknowledge their bad to try to grow from it like you can't you can't change or grow if you don't take stock in 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 the history and and i mean th- these are just facts like this is this is not a conspiracy theory like the mk ultra shit like isis you could like you follow the money and you can see where it goes and you can see what we've been involved in now you know i i likely have been in america with its faults uh, but it just I it's 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 simply put is like when you see the all lives matter person an all lives matter person nine times out of ten is a big military supporter and I like the military I'm not saying anything negative to it but all all lives matter uh, until we're sending people over to bomb brown people in other countries which we've been doing for decades. Well, and our internal racism helps feed that because as long as 
people aren't viewed as people less than than when you go to the country of their ethnic origin you know that is um that's that's a thing you get to do and you get to reinforce those ideals through our daily practices here in the US in a nutshell like i, I we deserve what we we're getting right now we deserve trump we deserve this virus to be ravaging our country because people don't listen like we deserve all of this shit right now you know do i want to see anybody hurt absolutely not do I think uh, it's not a tall order to wear a mask to go in a fucking grocery store? Like, absolutely. Like, you could put a fucking mask on your face and go, but no one wants it. Our pride is why we're we're this way. Our ego-driven American pride is why we're in the mess we're in. You know, like what when people talk about, man, Trump's the sh- such a piece of shit. It's like, yep, yeah, yeah, but we deserve what we're getting because we haven't changed. Well, I think, you know, when I when I think of the Trump supporter, oftentimes I do think there's a lot of trauma there. There's definitely a lot of trauma there, because when I listen to Trump and his talking heads, I hear the logic somebody with a personality disorder would use. And having a person like that in my own family, um, who's caused a lot of trauma to both me and my mom, my grandmother's a real, she's a therapist and a real piece of work. And um, having one of those types of people in my own family, it's very interesting to see, like, I think there is, there are folks that maybe have benefited from that kind of behavior, or were the favored person, or are and so reactionary from being raised around those personality types, that they they really gravitate toward the messaging. And that, that to me, my heart hurts for that because that means there's it's going to take a few generations to un unfuck that 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 orgy of sadness you know like i i yeah that's i don't know man this is a bummer man we're bumming out on unpops today we yeah. bumming well i mean it's we've had a lot of episodes that weren't necessarily comedy lately imagine that i mean the important thing is that trump can drink with one hand you know we thought he drank like a child in a sippy cup but now he can drink with one hand <laughs> yeah yeah oh, I, it, I, th- it, I think it's crazy too and it and it's a it's a big problem in my opinion i consider myself a moderate uh where i i i've said it earlier but i'll say it again it's it's a my team versus your team mentality and 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 it's from growing up cowboys and indians versus good guys versus bad guys versus if you live in chicago you're either a cubs fan or a Sox fan you know it shouldn't be a my team versus your team scenario when it comes to other people's lives and politics like it it, sh- it shouldn't be like my team is better than your team and this is even before trump got nominated I, I, when I, I worked an office job back in central Illinois and I had a coworker who was uh, a pastor and, and, and a Republican and we just, and I never really talked politics in the workplace, you know, it's a, just a rule of thumb, but I just asked him, I said, you know, who are you liking in the primaries? He's like, well, I like Dr. Ben Carson. I said, okay, word. I said, well, what if, what if Dr. Ben Carson doesn't get the nomination? Just speaking in generalities, I'm like, what if Trump gets nominated? He goes, well, I guess I'll vote for him because I've never not voted Republican. And that is the root of the problem, I think. It's that the inability to even consider anybody on the other team. And, and, and I'm saying this on the left, too. Like, like there's there's no, no room a lot of the times for people to even consider someone from the other side when there shouldn't be this, this split. Like, it, it, you know, America's well-being shouldn't be a bipartisan issue. 
Yeah, that was a hot that was a hot debate on Brouhaha one time where I was like, no, I, I work the road. I know a lot. Trump supporters come to my show. Like I, you know, but my hope is that because they always say, I don't agree with you, but I think you're funny, which I think is great. And you if that's true, think of this brown face the next time you're voting for some crazy shit, you know, like think about that. And I don't know if that's going to help. But I don't think running around just demonizing everybody is going to help either. One of the greatest comedic, I think, um, tragedies that's happened in the last few years is during uh, Chappelle's um, double specials, the Birdland and the other one, the one in the belly room, he briefly mentions this incredible book about the end of apartheid in South Africa, which by the way, there's still a lot of fucked up shit ha happening in South Africa, but the, it's called the Forgiveness Project. He briefly mentions it. He doesn't dive into it. He doesn't really get into the... He. I was wondering if he can make a good joke because I've read the book and it's heavy. It's heavy. But I do like that he brought it up. And when I would hear kids at the open mics and at the shows being like, if you watch the new Chappelle specials, they're so great. They're so perfect. They're so this. I never heard them mention that book. And I was like, I wish you had read it because it's really good. There's another really good book I um, I was just listening to an NPR Life Kit about called Me and White Supremacy. And it's like a program for how to like de um, decolonize and de-white supremacize or whatever, like pull those layers out. And it's like, um, it's basically the artist's way for your, your racist privilege thinking. And I'm definitely going to pick it up. Um, but the, what was it? White fragility. That one, I've heard a lot of bad things. Haven't read it. Heard a lot of bad things that it's mostly just a white lady being like, we're bad. We're bad, which is great. The first step is admitting that you have a problem, but then you have to recognize the insanity of that problem and then make a decision to change. And that's kind of where we're at is we have to make a decision to change and confronting the insanity of it all, I think, is the moment that our country's in and folks are struggling with that, truly struggling with that. Because it's it sucks when you're like, fuck, I've been insane this whole time. Ah! Yeah, this uh, this is a good episode. Oh, I think we got it. I think we got it. I think this is a sewed. Uh, thank you both for doing it. I appreciate it. Uh, what do we have to plug before we get out of here? Dave, you go first. Sure. Uh, like you were saying earlier, I am the proud co-host of uh, 12 Questions podcast with Miss Anna, Anna Valenzuela. Uh, you can find me on all social media platforms at Yates Comedy, Y-A-T-E-S Comedy. Uh, and I do make an insanely good hot sauce called Ha Ha Hot Sauce. And since I've been off the it's road, it good. is... It is my only source of income right now. So at ha ha hot sauce on Instagram and you can order a bottle or 12 at ha ha hot sauce.com. We'll link to it on, on pops. What part of Illinois are you from? Uh, I was born in Harvey, Illinois, South side of Chicago. And then uh, I got sober and started comedy in central Illinois, just outside of Peoria, Illinois. I was born in Peoria. I lived there. If, it, play, I if it plays in Peoria, it'll play. Right? It'll play anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, what do you got to plug? Same thing. 12 questions. We are very, very excited to have Dave be on the podcast. He is the salty to my sweet, and I love it. Um, and that hot sauce is really fucking good. Uh, I used to make and sell hot sauce myself, and uh, what he's got going is some good shit. Uh, you could also find me at AnnaValenzuela.com. My social media handle is at Anna B is Fun. That is Twitter, Instagram, Venmo. Um, you can uh, also on Facebook, Facebook slash 
at Anavia is fun for as long as I'm on Facebook. Every six months, I'm like, I got to get off this thing. Um, but yeah, check us out. Doing a lot of Zoom shows, doing all kinds of cool stuff. But really check out the pod. We're trying to, um, we're going to start some Patreon content and all that kind of stuff. But we really want a lot of people listening for us. We, it's, a, it's a real fun time. And we just, we talk about the world through the lens of the 12 steps. It's basically it. It's a good podcast. It's great. That's why it's on this network. Yes. Uh, speaking of Zoom shows, we're launching a Zoom show. Ooh. Uh, an unpop Zoom show later this month. Um, we uh, also, speaking of not fucking with Facebook, I haven't done that in years, but I also don't think I'm going to use Twitter anymore. So follow follow Unpops on Twitter, at Unpops. I actually, I, it's not that I don't think I'm going to use Twitter anymore. I already know. I tweeted that uh, I'm not using Twitter anymore. I can't fucking do it. I get it. So follow at Unpops or any of the other shows that have their own Twitter accounts. And those are just run by nameless, faceless interns and definitely not me. You'll never talk to me on Twitter again. Are you so, doing um, Discord? Yeah. we're One of the other things we're doing in the uh, on the Patreon is if you subscribe at the $10 level, we do weekly chats with various hosts in the Unpops Discord. Maybe we'll have Anna and Dave do one at some point. Could eh? be. I got to learn how to Discord. I'm an old lady. You just need to know how to type. <laughs> okay. It's very easy. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I forgot, I have an album out if you want to listen to it, if if you want to listen to some comedy stylings of Dave Yates. It's called One Long Merch Pitch. Uh, I'm very on brand. Uh, it's basically just a, a long pitch to sell you hot sauce, but uh, people seem to enjoy it, and uh, it's on uh, all platforms and most recently Sirius XM Radio. Very nice. All right, let's get the fuck out of here. Dave, say goodbye. Goodbye, Dave. Anna, say goodbye. Goodbye, love you. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. Goodbye.